The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn in your Bibles to our text this evening, uh, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we'll be considering just verses 1 and 2. I'm going to go ahead and read from verses 1 to 17. Of Exodus chapter 20, this is the word of God. Let's worship him by giving careful attention to its reading this evening. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 until verse 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's seek his blessing. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we bless you indeed for your word. And as we come and receive it again this evening, we ask, O God, that you might grant that we would know the fullness of the power of our crucified and risen Lord Jesus working at us. O Lord, pour out upon us your grace. Come to us and bless us that we might Uh, by your grace, uh, through the power of your spirit, applying your word into our hearts and lives that we might know and love and serve you all the more faithfully. Hear us, Lord God, for we do ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is an important moment. We've reached the Decalogue. Children, that word Decalogue means Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. If this sermon uh, sermon series has felt at times like we are moving along at a fast pace, well, we're going to slow down a bit here. As preachers, it's always a challenge to decide how much of the text to use for a sermon. In fact, Pastor Holst and Matthew Ezel and I met this week, and we said, how how much time do we want to take to cover the Decalogue? You could compare preaching the Bible to being on a road trip. If you're driving across the country, wanting to see as much as, as, as you can of, of the geography of the, the land of our nation, you'd, you'd want to go at just the right pace, wouldn't you? 
You'd want to be able to see things adequately, but you'd want to keep moving to, in order to be able to kind of see everything. But you'd certainly come to certain places where you'd want to slow down and really take in the view, maybe even stop the car and get out, right? Take some, some pictures. Uh, perhaps you'd, you'd do that if you were seeing a beautiful mountain like Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that, that comes to my mind because my family was there a few years back and we actually worshipped in a, a PCA church where if you were sitting in the, the, the pew and facing the preacher, the whole back wall was pretty much just a window and they had Pikes Peak right in the background there. It was a little distracting for us, but the, the congregation, they were used to it. I'm thinking about mountains because as we come to the Ten Commandments, here we are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Well, as we come to the Decalogue, this is certainly kind of a, a Pike's Peak moment, isn't it? This is, this is a, a moment where we stop and we want to really consider the view well. This is, the, this is that portion of God's Word, which, as we learned from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 4, was actually written on tablets of stone with the finger of God. So this is important. And we're not going to take a week for each of the commandments. We could have done that and really drawn it out. We are going to take three weeks. This week we're going to cover just the preface. And then the next week we'll cover the first table of the law. That's commandments one through four. And then we'll conclude with commandments five through ten, the second table of the law. If you saw my outline, you know that in considering the preface, I'm making use of our larger catechism, that, that very question and answer which we use for our affirmation of faith this evening. So you might want to keep your bulletin handy as I'm going to use that for reference. It really kind of, it kind of expounds the text for us, and I want to suggest that we can note four elements from that. I'm going to rearrange, rearrange the order from what we see them in the catechism. But our message this evening is this, that the preface to the Decalogue teaches us about God's redemption, his covenant, his bond to his people, and then lastly, his divine attributes. Redemption, covenant, his bond to his people, and then his divine attributes. We're beginning with his redemption. What does the preface teach us about the Lord? It teaches us that he is the God of redemption. This is so important. We want to get this Right, We want to view the mountain rightly, as it were. Sinai, that is the law, will be nothing. It will be nothing for us but a mountain full of hopeless gloom and despair. It will bring us only bondage, condemnation, and death unless we see God's grace revealed to us right here. This watershed moment in Israel's history, here they were, about to receive the Ten Commandments. How did the Lord begin? He began with this reminder of his redeeming grace. I delivered you from your slavery. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, but I delivered you. I am the God who redeemed you. Remember, your Redeemer. The larger catechism doesn't actually use that word Redeemer, but the shorter catechism does. Question 44, answer of the 40, uh, uh, answer 44 of the Shorter Catechism tells, tells us that the preface teaches us that the Lord is our God and Redeemer. And this preface so powerfully reminds us of what we've said in this sermon series, that the, the redemption 
which the people needed was not redemption from Pharaoh, not redemption from their bondage to Egypt. They needed redemption from their own sin. And the law will function to remind us of that, remind us of our need of such redemption. And so here the Lord reminded the people of his redeeming grace, grace, See it this evening. Grace which is greater than Sinai or Pike's Peak. Grace which reaches all the way up to the heavens. Grace. Without that, indeed, this, the law would be not a source of freedom, but only bondage. And with respect to uh, even this generation and, and many of their descendants, so many, they did not always learn that lesson so well, did they? I want us to see this as we... Look at the New Testament a bit together this evening. Flip over in your Bibles if you'd like to see yourself. I'm going to read from Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. As we come to the Decalogue, I think it's so important to remember that by God's design, an important purpose of the law was to reveal Israel's sin and our sin and to show us our need for the coming Redeemer. We may recall... In fact, we, we heard reminded of this even in the Sunday school lesson this morning in God's providence, but we may recall the, the error of the Galatian Judaizers whom the Apostle Paul opposed in this epistle. They were teaching justification on the basis of the works of the law, particularly circumcision, but we can, uh, uh, we, we, this teaches us more generally about the danger of seeking justification on the basis of the works of of the law rather than by grace through faith alone. The law revealed our need of grace. And so verse 22, Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 says this, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, now before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned, notice that language, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. If you can keep your finger there, but just think about those words. Talk about a a reminder of the need for the, the grace of the coming Christ. Without him, without that grace, the law would be nothing but a prison sentence. The law revealed the need of the Redeemer. Remember that well, Christian. The law reveals your need for your Redeemer, your need of Christ. And praise God for what Paul wrote earlier in that same chapter. If you look up, over in, uh, up at verse 13, here's our Redeemer. It says, Christ redeemed us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The spirit, what an important thing to remember as we approach the law. Keep that in mind. But praise God for that. The Son of God, crucified for our sins, Jesus, our Redeemer, Now, on the one hand, of course, Israel's redemption was not fully revealed, not until Christ came into the world. But brothers and sisters, marvel at the grace in that it was revealed even here as the Lord revealed himself as 
the Redeemer, even here in the preface to the giving of the law. I think we can say here that not only was the Lord reminding the people of what he had done, but he was giving a promise of what he would do. And so for God's elect, those saved by grace through faith in the coming Messiah, the law for them was not a prison sentence, was it? Not at all. God had had already revealed his grace in redeeming his people, not only from physical slavery. I think that's what we see in the larger catechism. As you you look at it again in your bulletin, the seventh line, it says, as he brought them out of their bondage in Egypt, so he delivereth us from our spiritual thraldom. I I trust you wake up every day and praise the Lord for delivering you from your spiritual thraldom. Your bondage, your slavery, the Lord delivers. He has delivered us from our bondage under the guilt and under the reign of sin. He, in doing so, he's revealed himself to be the God of redemption. The God of redemption. And our next point, he's the God of the covenant. If you look again at the catechism, we confessed that this preface uh, teaches us, sixth line down there, that he, the Lord, is a God in covenant as with Israel of old, so with all his people. And so it was the belief of the, the Westminster Assembly that this preface spoke not only about God in covenant with Israel, but God in covenant with us, all God's people, ultimately all those who believe. That's because it, it revealed the covenant of grace. As I said last time, that, that covenant of grace was further disclosed and administered, even, yes, under Moses. That was true, I would say, even here at the giving of the law, as revealed in the preface. And brothers and sisters, as we think about all of the, all of the gracious blessings, all of the gifts that God has given in fulfillment of his covenant Promises. I think it's so good for us to focus in on one in particular, and that's the gift of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You know, when we approach the law, there are, there are two dangers, two extremes, two errors to avoid. One is to look to the law as a means of justification, right? Like the Galatian Judaizers. The opposite extreme, that, that, that's the legalist, that's the moralist. The opposite extreme is to say, hey, the gospel sets us free from the law. We can go, we don't have to obey the commandments. That's the, that's the error of the antinomian. Well, one thing that both these errors have in common is that they neglect, they ignore, they miss something so important, someone so important, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. If Sinai revealed the, the grace of the covenant of grace, then surely uh, Sinai revealed that, that future promised but already present gift, the Holy Spirit, by whom all those, all those ordained unto eternal life were, were made willing uh, and able to believe in that promised Christ, that one from whom they would receive life and salvation. Of course, we know the, the sad story. We know that, that Israel's covenant-breaking unfaithfulness would require a new covenant. The prophets would testify of that. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It says in, 
in verse 33, I will, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Prophet uh, Ezekiel 39, 29 uh, says, and I will not hide myself, I will not hide my face any more from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And so clearly we know that in the new covenant, the spirit is poured out in greater measure than ever before. But if this preface revealed God's grace of granting deliverance from that spiritual bondage, if this freedom was, was not, only, not only freedom from the condemnation of sin, but freedom from the reign of sin, well, that freedom had to be by the power of the Spirit. So yes, I think we would have to say there, even at Sinai, God's elect, as they were enabled to trust, trust in God's redeeming grace, trust in the coming Redeemer, trust in, uh, with, with a faith that would move them to true obedience. If they were enabled to obey these commandments, then it was only by the power of the Spirit. Of course, not one of them did so perfectly, not at all. They were, they were sinners who needed Christ, but insofar as they were able to obey, it was because of the power of the Spirit, even at work, in them. Well, brothers and sisters, if, if they were given grace, if they were enabled by the Spirit to obey, how much more you and I this evening, as those who are children of the, the new covenant, as we approach the law, we do well to remember this. We do well to think much about the Holy Spirit, even be filled with the Spirit. might sound strange to say, as we meditate upon the law, let's be filled with the Spirit even thinking much about what the Bible teaches about the relationship between law-keeping and uh, being filled with the Spirit. Think about Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. In fact, these are so important. Uh, if you'd like to see it yourself, turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, such important words, I think, to consider as we approach the Ten Commandments. What did Paul write beginning in verse 1? He wrote that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Notice that. Again, freedom, freedom from the guilt of sin, but also freedom from the reign of sin by the Spirit. Paul continues in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, there's power. There's power, yes, to, to fulfill, power to obey the, the law, the commandments, is that not marvelous, dear Christian? You, you know, for those who have the Spirit, for those who are in Christ, there's a sense in which we can see this Ten Commandments is not just Ten Commandments, they really are, they're Ten Promises for the Christian. Promises, ultimately, that a day will come that we will obey the commandments perfectly as we're there in the presence of Christ in glory. We will be 100% controlled by the Spirit 
and we shall not murder, and we shall not steal, and we shall not commit adultery, and we shall not covet. We shall have no other gods before him. We shall perfectly love one another as we perfectly love and obey him, our God alone. And as those who have that blessed hope, we already have that power, the very powers of the age to come at work in us now by the Spirit. The Spirit gives us the ability. The Spirit gives us the desire. The Spirit enables us to understand our calling and our duty before our God. And and, and that brings us to the next thing which we learn from this preface, what it teaches us about the Lord and his, his redeeming grace, his covenantal grace. Our third point is that he binds his people unto himself. If you look again at the catechism, that last part, we see those concluding words where it says, and that therefore we are bound to take him for our God alone and to keep all his commandments. You say, what? We're bound? I thought this was freedom from bondage, God's redemption out of Egypt. Here we read that we're, we're in bondage again. Well, when we understand God's redeeming grace, God's covenant grace, we understand that this is not bondage, this is freedom. But we understand that this is not cheap grace. It's not grace which says, I'll, I'll take Jesus as my Savior, but I'll be pleased to continue following myself as my own Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for freedom from condemnation, but I'll continue to, to walk in sin. No, that, that, that's not true freedom at all. In fact, that would be spiritual bondage. That would be slavery to sin. That's not what this preface teaches us. The Lord was saying, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of slavery, out of slavery that you might serve me. And he was teaching his people that, that to be bound to him, that, that was not slavery at all. That was true freedom. In fact, that's, that's, the kind of, uh, that's the kind of slavery that one would freely choose. We can use an illustration from the law regarding slavery. You might recall in Deuteronomy chapter 15 how, how there was that sabbatical year provision for slaves. So if a Hebrew was, was sold to you, became your slave, he was to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he was to go free. And, and not empty-handed, you were to be generous and furnish that slave well as he went off into freedom. And you were to do so remembering your redemption. You were a slave, but the Lord your God redeemed you. It was a wonderful provision. And yet the law actually envisioned instances, you may recall, where a slave might actually not want to go. He might even, he might actually say, to use the words of Deuteronomy 15, 16, I will not go out from you. He might say that because he loves you so much. And if that happened, what did the law say? Deuteronomy 15, 17. Then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. To think that, what a beautiful thought, right? To think that a slave could serve such a kind, such a loving, such a wonderful, gracious master that he should desire forever to remain his slave. I don't want freedom from you. I want to be bound to you forever. And I think that gives us something of a a picture of the relationship which the Lord desired to have between himself and his people. He redeemed them. 
He, he brought them into covenant with him such that they would be his people bound to him forever and ever. And so it was for all those redeemed by his grace. So it was for all those who truly understood his grace, for all those who partook of the covenant of grace in true faith. And that's reflected in this preface to the Ten Commandments here. God's people are bound to him, bound to him and to his commandments. They loved him. They desired to obey him. Their relationship to the commandments reflected their relationship to the Lord, and they were bound to keep them. Of course, they they would not do so perfectly, and that's why wonderfully God would make provision for their sin. There would be forgiveness. There would be atonement made through sacrifice, and even those sacrifices, even that atonement would remind them again and again of God's abundant covenantal grace. It continually pointed them to Christ and the grace of the coming Redeemer, and understood in the context of such grace, then the law was not to be a source of bondage. It was a, it was a source of freedom. Again, freedom from the guilt of sin, freedom from the reign of sin, freedom. That must be the case. How else could the psalmist write what he writes in Psalm 119, 97? He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In fact, in verse 45, he says, I I shall walk in a wide place. Some translations uh, translate that. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. To walk in the commandments was to to walk in, in freedom and in fellowship with the Lord. And if that was true, even in the old covenant, how much more is that true in the new we, we understand more fully God's grace in binding us to himself, binding us by the Spirit. The Spirit unites us to Christ. And, of course, we understand our duty in this regard. Obedience to Christ's commandments, it's, it's not optional. If we know Christ, if we are under his covenantal lordship, we are under his binding authority to obey Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. Of course, we know his words. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that concludes the Ten Commandments, right? Which come to us through the mediation of Christ. If we love him, we will keep his commandments again by the Spirit. In fact, we should remember what he says there in the very next verse, John 14, verse 16. Thinking back to our last point. Regarding the Holy Spirit, our Lord said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Note that well. We can remember the context there. Jesus is comforting the disciples who are discouraged with the news that he's leaving them. Their hearts are saddened as he's speaking of returning to the Father. But here he's making this promise, I'm going to remain with you and you will know fellowship with me by the Spirit whom I will send. And and, and he was instructing them that you will enjoy that fellowship as by the Spirit you obey my commandments. See, brothers and sisters, that, that, that's not bondage, is it? 
That's liberty. That's, that's sweetness and fellowship with Christ. No wonder the, James calls the law the, the, the law of liberty. In Christ, the, the commandments are not a source of bondage, but wonderful freedom. Jesus said in John 8, 34, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But he said in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so to be, to, to, to be bound to God's commandments or bound to obey God's commandment, commandments, that's freedom. For all those redeemed and bound to God in covenantal union, union with Christ. That brings us to the last thing which we learn from this preface about our, uh, our Lord. Our last point this evening is that in this preface he reveals his divine attributes. I, I save this for our last point, even though you can see in the catechism there, it sort of begins with this. If you look again at the catechism in line three, it tells us that this is a preface wherein God manifesteth his sovereignty as being Jehovah, the eternal, immutable, and almighty God, having his being in and of himself and giving being to all his word and works. There's a lot there, isn't there? Rich theology, to use the technical term, we speak of the the incommunicable attributes of God. That is, those, those attributes of God which he alone possesses. They're unique to him. He alone is eternal. He has no beginning, no end. He alone is unchangeable. That's what immutable means. He alone is, is almighty, all-powerful, and so forth. And we see his name, Jehovah, or, or Yahweh. This is, this is his, his covenantal name, the Lord. This is that name by which he revealed himself to Moses and through Moses to the people. And he was here reminding Israel of how he had proven himself to be the true God as he brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Think about that. Think about that, how he showed himself to be the eternal God in all of the plagues uh, which he visited upon Egypt. Think about how uh, in, in all of these ways he proved that he is the God who created all things but at the same time proved himself to be the unchangeable, eternal God. Just as I sovereignly ruled over all things when I created all things, I continued ruling over all things as I performed all of these wonders in the land of Egypt. He proved that he is the self-existent God. He's, He's not like his creation. He's not dependent upon anything outside of himself. His creation, people, things, They are all dependent on him for their being. That was was proven true of Pharaoh and of all of the people and all of the gods of Egypt. And it was certainly true of his people. They, we, we owe our existence to him. He owes his existence to no one else. He has his being in and of himself. He's the one who gives being to all others as the Catechism says, he's the one who gives being even to his, his words and his works. And I love the emphasis here on God as the Lord, as the creator. Because we recall how we pointed out that the, the plagues of Egypt were something of a work of decreation. God brought decreation upon uh, Egypt, showing that he was making Israel, his redeemed people, 
to be his new or his work of recreation. And that great work was to be on their minds as, the, as he delivered these Ten Commandments. Brothers and sisters, what, what does that fact teach us this evening in closing? I think this is such good application for us. This is why I saved this for the very last point. Good application, a very simple word of application. Our children can understand this very well this evening. Children, how can we, how can we show the world that our God is a powerful God? How can we show the world that the Lord is the God who created all things, who created us, who continues to rule over us as the king of all of his creation? Well, one simple answer is this, by obeying, by obeying these commandments, these Ten Commandments. Of course, it's only, only possible because of Christ. Jesus is the one who obeyed perfectly for us. Jesus is the one who has accomplished. Jesus is the one who is God's great work of recreation. But but we are able to live as God's new creation as we trust Christ, as we walk with, as we obey Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. But as we do that, We show the world that that God continues to be the king, the creator king of all. Is that not marvelous? Yes, God's power and his his creator kingship was shown even in Egypt, even when Pharaoh was refusing to obey and saying, who is the Lord that I should obey him? But how much more wonderfully is God's creator kingship power shown forth when we, his people, obey him? So children in a world full of sinners where children so, so often refuse to obey. They rebel against their parents and and show themselves to be just like Pharaoh. Just think about what we are saying to the world when we obey, when we obey that simple commandment, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There's the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother. Brothers and sisters, when we obey, and we give ourselves to simple obedience to the commandments of God. We are, we are testifying to the world that the Lord, he is our God, and that he is indeed the eternal, unchangeable, powerful, self-existent creator who rules over all, and that we deem him worthy, worthy to be obeyed, worthy to be loved and worshipped and served. And in so doing, yes, we testify of that, that redeeming covenantal grace whereby he has bound us to himself as his new creation in Christ Jesus. Is that not the testimony you want to give to the world? May the Lord enable us to give that testimony. Let us, let us go forth and may our light so shine before men that they might see those good works and that they might glorify our Father who's in heaven. Let's pray together.